0: Okay, folks. Here's a controversial episode. I'm gonna put it very close. It's controversial. It's about climate change, which our last episode was about climate change. Do you see a series I'm running here? But I also will kind of have a rebuttal, not quite a rebuttal for this one coming out on Monday. Um, This is the third episode this week, and this is talking about how we all need to go to a plant-based diet. And I don't necessarily agree with the person, but I do agree that he made some great points and and as far as lifestyles and things like that go, I totally, totally understand where he went the reason why he did this. Um, but I feel it's important when I started the chats on the blog cabin is to have people come on and chat about their stories. Um, their story can be wrong. Nobody's story is wrong. We may not always agree with what they're saying, but we need to give everybody a voice to share so that we can all learn to communicate better, to listen, and to realize that your viewpoint's not wrong, my viewpoint's not wrong, but we just may have different viewpoints. So with that said, I'm going to leave you with the episode with Stuart. He is a, the author of Escape the Matrix. Um, that's the title of the episode. And it's all about going to a plant-based diet and what the, what is, what some of the causes of climate change. So I do play devil advocates in this episode and this is a longer intro than I normally do. I do play devil advocates and I do ask him some questions about, you know, a lot of farmers who are plant-based. Um, what happens if a drought comes? Where are we going to get our food? And he actually answers it, but I will say the one thing for Stuart is when he doesn't know the answer, he says, I really don't know which a lot of people, when they're trying to sway you to their opinion, will try to bring something up or try to go round and round, but Stuart didn't. So I really hope you enjoy this interview. Um, Listen to it. Take from it what you will. Um, But he says some really great things about uh, maybe going one day a a week with not eating meat. Um, It's up to you what you decide to do. But I'm just putting the info out there. join melissa and her guests on the chats from the blog cabin podcast from north carolina this podcast will have you feeling like you've known these folks for years listen in as they chat about life culture current events and more all with a special southern flair curl up with your favorite beverage and get ready to be entertained tune in now for a unique experience that's fun and insightful Hey, y'all welcome back to another episode of chats from the blog cabin you know the show where i virtually invite people into the blog cabin to chat about life and today we're chatting about a lot of controversial topics i will say this is going to be a very controversial topic but i think that to be fair we have to know both sides of the story and hear both sides of the story instead of coming in with preconceived notions um mm-hmm. i'm chatting with Stuart, who is the author of escape inside the matrix And we're going to talk about being a vegetarian. We're going to talk about factory farms. We're going to talk about a whole bunch of different stuff. But, Stuart, first tell us a little bit about yourself before we get into these controversial topics.
1: All right. Thank you, Melissa. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, I grew up in the state of Kentucky, um, and it's a beautiful state with, uh, you know, wonderful people. My family and friends are here. But unfortunately, it's one of the least healthy states in our nation um, in fact, Kentucky ranks 48th in healthy behaviors and 47th in health outcomes. And there's really there's only one other state that has more people with multiple chronic conditions than the state of Kentucky. And I'm not saying that to <laughs> poo-poo our state. I'm just saying that because this is the environment I grew up in. Uh, there were so many people around me who were struggling with their health. Uh, from heart disease and cancer, or hypertension, diabetes, and, and more. And I grew up around that and just thought that uh, it was inev- inevitable. We were all going to come down with some sort of chronic condition, and the best that we could hope for was to manage it somehow with pills, shots, and surgeries. Um, but fortunately, at the age of 23, I made a lifestyle change that I thought would offer me the best chance of avoiding so many of the chronic conditions that I was seeing in the lives of everyone around me. And I gave up eating meat. And I did that because science had come out saying that the saturated fats found in meat would lead to heart disease. And I didn't want to become a statistic. I didn't want to have a heart attack. And so I gave up eating meat in, like I said, 1985 at the age of 23, and then I became fully plant-based. In 2008, and have been uh, ever since. And I gave up, you know, cheese and dairy and eggs uh, back then. And so, what I have discovered in my own life is that when we escape the matrix and eat a plant-based uh, diet, that uh, it restores our health and it, it preserves our health. But that's not just me saying it. The the science that I share in my book supports that uh, a plant-based lifestyle can do all of this and more, because it can also help avert some of the worst case scenarios that we're facing right now with climate change. And we can dive into that as well.
0: So you said Kentucky was the, not the worst. What's the worst state then?
1: Well, uh, our neighbor, West Virginia, has more people with multiple chronic health conditions than Kentucky. And, you know, that's our neighbor to the East uh, of us. So. Wow.
0: Wow. Do you think it's because it's people are more concentrated in in that location because they're not they're not considered really big states? So there's more concentration of people. That's why it's showing up.
1: Um, I think that um, it's because of our lifestyles, honestly, Melissa. You know, um, and also in the eastern part of our state, it's very mountainous. You know, they have, we have the Appalachian Mountains there. That are you know not like the Rocky Mountains today, but they were you know huge at one point, but they're they're much smaller now. But um you know, it's a, it's an area where there's been a lot of poverty. There's not been a lot of investment over the years in infrastructure. There are food deserts in Eastern Kentucky. Um, access to health care and education is low. And so I think there's a lot of reasons why that is. and and of course, West Virginia is just a neighbor. So you know, uh, our health and the environment doesn't respect state lines or any kind of you know boundaries. Um, you know, so I think I think the conditions in 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 the area um, you know just transfer across from West Virginia into Kentucky and vice versa. Now, there's
0: one thing that I noticed when you. I've- when your um, person sent me the talking notes, but also I've noticed as well, why is it so expensive to eat healthy? Like you said about being a vegetarian and eating healthy. Why is that so outrageous when you go to the grocery store or you buy? Why is it?
1: Well, um, a lot of it has to do with the inequities that are kind of baked into our food system. So um, plant-based foods get, much less assistance from the federal government than animal-based foods. So for instance, in 2019, the beef industry in the United States received $9 billion in indirect and direct payments from the government. That's just a handout to beef producers to create um, you know, affordable uh, hamburgers for us to eat. Uh, without the government involvement, you know, the cost of meat would be prohibitive for, for most people. You know, historically speaking, meat has been a luxury item that only the wealthiest could enjoy. And that's why it's, you know, it's so uh, special, you know, for holidays and stuff. We bring out, you know, more and more meat because it's a sign of affluence, you know, and it makes us, you know, it's, it's a celebratory type of food. But what has happened through the subsidies is we've taken these luxury foods and we've made them extremely Uh, economical. And so we're consuming them at much higher rates now than ever before. So I think one of the things is that the government's involved with keeping these prices artificially low. For instance, for every dollar that a lentil grower receives from our government in assistance, a cattle rancher receives $470. And for every um, mushroom grower, they they get a dollar, a pork producer gets $160. And if you're growing oats, you get one dollar, and the dairy industry gets eighty dollars. So, that's baking in uh, inequities into the system, and that's why uh, plant-based foods are often so much more expensive than the animal-based foods. Uh, it's because our government is subsidizing them, and unfortunately, you know, we're paying for that with our tax dollars. You know, our tax dollars are going into these subsidies to create these foods that end up making so many people sick. And of course the, the corporations are profiting from our buying uh, these foods. And then of course, Big Pharma comes in to try to create medicines to help us deal with these chronic conditions that are a result of, of, of a poor diet. So it's, um, it's a kind of complicated web uh, that we're living in. And so I wanted to you know write my book to kind of connect the dots for some, some people understand, you know, what's happening and and really what's at stake. Because, um, you know, I was happy to just eat this way for many years and let other people do their own thing. But we're at a critical time on our planet right now. And we can talk about uh, climate change and what's happening on our planet and how animal agriculture fuels climate change. And so we need to make some hard decisions about, you know, what kind of foods do we want to grow? Um, and where do the subsidies, are they going to go? The the farm bill comes out, I think, this September of this year, and I know there are a lot of people who are trying to, you know, get money from the farm bill to produce their foods, and so I think we need to restructure the subsidies um, away from animal-based foods and give more money to plant-based foods.
0: Okay, so we're going to talk about how we can Introduce more plant based foods into our lives after a brief commercial. So we'll be right back. Chats from the Blog Cabin.
1: Enjoying this episode? Leave a review now.
0: Chats from the Blog Cabin. Hit
1: subscribe and don't miss the next episode.
0: y'all hey, it's Melissa coming to you from the blog cabin to chat about for a few minutes one of my favorite conferences are coming is coming up it's called the rise up Christian parenting conference whether you feel like you've blown it as a parent or you're not sure how to navigate the next season of parenting or you have non-christian family or friends telling you how to raise your kids I don't know how many times I got that or you simply want to be challenged encouraged inspired and equipped to be the best parent you can be And the Rise Up Parenting Conference is one that you won't want to miss. The conference runs from March 14th through the 16th, but grab your free ticket by the 13th, so on the 14th, you're ready to go. And the conference runs from 10 to 2 every day. But don't worry, if you can't make it from 10 to 2, you can always catch the replays later at your own time this is one conference that I highly recommend that you check out. Plus, it's free. How many times do you have a free conference? I will put in the show notes where you can find it. Be blessed. And we're back chatting with Stuart. He wrote it Inside the Matrix or Escape the Matrix. Um, so let's talk about how hard it is to incorporate plant-based foods into because obviously you don't want to completely go cold turkey because your body is going to go what what they call meat withdrawal or something you want to (laughs) gradually put it in and then so your body gets used to it
1: yes that's right i mean for me i i did it overnight and you know i i don't really remember that it was hard because it was 38 years ago and I don't remember what was going on uh, when I was 23 now at the age of 61. But you know, if we ever try to uh, make adjustments to um, our lifestyle, like we try to give up caffeine or give up sugar, you know, there's a period where our bodies are going to go through a withdrawal and we're going to feel kind of lousy for a little while. So let's take caffeine as an example. If you gave up caffeine today, Uh, You'd be fine for the rest of the day. But by this time tomorrow, you would have a pretty bad headache, probably, depending on how much caffeine you've been consuming on a daily basis. But if you over the course of a week gradually wean yourself off of caffeine, having less and less every day after a week, you're you're caffeine free. You're not suffering from headaches. You feel great and your body's getting into its own uh, natural rhythms for giving you energy. You're not relying on that caffeine. Well, the same thing can happen with moving away from animal-based foods. You know, we don't have to do it overnight, and you can do it gradually. And you know, any kind of change you can make towards uh, eating more whole uh, fruits, vegetables, legumes, uh, grains, nuts, and seeds, the better off you're going to be. So you could start with just one day a week, and then after a while maybe maybe make it two days a week or say you know one one meal a day i'm gonna you know not eat meat or or dairy or or whatever and just you know make the transition uh slowly and you know and if if one day you know you you can't do it you know don't beat yourself up about it you know uh this is something that we're we're all on a journey and we can do it at our own pace um, and we just need to pick ourselves back up and do the best we can where we are with what we have at the time is what I always tell people. So, um, yeah.
0: What's the first thing you would suggest to people that are looking to try to transition out of eating a lot of meat? What would be the first thing that you suggest they try to substitute in for?
1: Well, we're accustomed to centering a meal around a piece of animal protein on our plates. You know, I grew up this way. You know, my parents... Um, taught me to eat meat, and our society reinforced that, you know, through throughout my lifetime. And so, what I say in my book is that, you know, none of us, or very few of us anyway, consciously chose to consume animal-based foods. It's just something that we were taught at an early age, and because it's all we've ever known, we think it's natural, necessary, and nutritious to do that. But the science that I share in my book says, you know, it's none of those things. So. It seems normal because, you know, that's all, what we've been taught throughout our whole life. And that's what we most of us have been doing for our whole lives. And so to make the transition easier, I think is, you know, if you have um, a meal that you prepare with chicken, you, know, you can substitute the chicken with a plant based uh, chicken substitute. And there's plenty out there in the grocery stores today. There's uh, so many more uh, meat analogs. the grocery store you have companies like beyond Meat and impossible foods that are creating you know nutritious and healthy uh meat analogs basically made from plants and they taste a lot more like you know chicken and hamburger than they used to you know just even four or five years ago so they're making improvements every year in that regard so i think one of the easiest ways is to just substitute the meat on your plate with one of these uh, plant-based meat alternatives and you cook your meal just the same way and there's also dairy alternatives so uh, you can find these uh, foods in the grocery store and yes you know they do cost a little bit more but with inflation and the price of meat and you know eggs have skyrocketed um mm. you know it's not you know it's probably on an equal amount now in terms of the cost but you don't have to eat those uh, Packaged uh, plant-based foods. You can just eat whole foods like uh, brown rice and, and beans and potatoes, and, and you can uh, you know get your vegetables and fruits uh, seasonally. You can even grow your own. So there's a lot of different ways that you can do this to make this work, and it can be um, you know affordable to do. There's a woman who has a, a cookbook out called uh, Plant-Based on a Budget, I think. And she shows how you can, you know, eat this way on $30 a week. So it can be done. It just takes a little bit more effort because, you know, we're not in a plant-based society. society.
0: (laughs) So do you think looking back, would it be harder for you now to go plant-based? Or do you think because, because you said you were in your sixties, because you went when you were in your twenties, do you think in your sixties, it would be harder for you to go plant-based if you hadn't gone plant-based before?
1: I think I as think we age, we get, you know, uh into our routines and and you know, we can kind of get into ruts and you know, I myself, you know, can get into food ruts too even as a plant-based eater. So I think, you know, at the end of the day we're talking about behavior modification. We need to modify our behavior and you know, the more years that we are uh living a certain lifestyle, it's going to be a little bit more challenging I think to change that. But I think it can be done and I think it can be gra- done gradually. And and for me, you know, I always keep my vision in mind. What is it that I'm trying to do? And that always motivates me and keeps me uh, on on the path, so to speak. Um, and so I think if someone wants to make this transition to read my book and, and learn the science and the facts that all support, you know, making this lifestyle change. And then once you know the science and the reasons behind it, then I think it makes it easier to make this transition.
0: Do you think, it would have been easier if you were still 23 and you were transitioning to now because there's so many more alternatives for you out there. Oh, definitely.
1: Definitely. Oh my gosh. It was, it was like a a wasteland uh, back in 1985. I mean, there was, um, there was only one, milk alternative, I think it was called uh, by a company called Eden Soy, and it was a soy milk. And that was the only soy milk you could find. And then there was like one brand of tofu. I mean, it, it is so much easier today. And there's so many more options available that it's never been easier or tastier to to give this lifestyle a try.
0: And you probably had to be very creative when you first started about what you were eating because you you didn't want to keep eating the same things over and over and over again.
1: Right. And, you know, the way to get the most benefit health-wise from eating this way is what, to eat what's called a rainbow. You want to eat a wide variety of fruits and vegetables and eat all the colors of the uh, different varieties of, of fruits and vegetables that are available because that's where the phytonutrients are that that bring us so much uh, health. And so, you know, we want to make sure that we're eating from a wide variety of fruits and vegetables, uh, whole grains, uh, legumes, nuts and seeds, and just Um, eat as many as we can over the course of a week. And that helps nourish our microbiome. And, and, you know, I think they say 70% of our immune system is connected with our gut. And so that's why when you eat uh, healthy plant-based foods, it it improves our immune system. And, um, you know, it's just a cascading effect of of health that comes to us. It's amazing. So I highly recommend people, you know, give this a try. Because it's never been easier, Melissa. Yeah.
0: You keep commenting about climate change, so let's talk about what climate change has done to, you know, the, what, factory farms, because it's not really the small farmers, it's the factory farmers that are out there to make a mega buck that are doing to our climate
1: Well, you know, our mainstream media talks about climate change. Almost every day we hear about it. And we know that the burning of fossil fuels releases carbon dioxide into the atmosphere. And so mainstream media is reporting that we need to move away from burning fossil fuels into clean energy solutions like wind and and solar. And we need to start driving electric vehicles. But what the mainstream media never talks about is the carbon footprint of the food on our plates. And uh, the World Bank, uh, two environmentalist scientists at the World Bank did a study and they looked at the the carbon emissions from animal agriculture throughout the whole supply chain. And they determined that 51%, 51% of all human-made greenhouse gases are generated from livestock and animal agriculture. And that's, that's huge. If all the meat and dairy cows on the planet were a country, they would have more greenhouse gas emissions than the UK and the EU combined. And so that is why it's so vital that we talk about this. We talk about the the carbon footprint of the food we eat because mainstream media isn't talking about it. And Oxford University did a study and said that Americans could lower their carbon footprint by 73% simply by becoming plant-based and giving up uh, meat and dairy. So there's not one other thing that you could do that could lower your personal carbon footprint by that much. I mean, you could put solar panels on your house and drive an electric car and all that, but you could never lower your carbon footprint by 73% um, by doing anything else. And, And that's how powerful it is in terms of uh, the environment, so I have some charts in my book that show, you know, the environmental cost of growing a variety of foods. And so I have a chart that shows the cost to the environment of growing uh, plant-based foods and animal-based foods. And then I have a chart about uh, showing, you know, protein-rich animal-based foods and protein-rich uh, plant-based foods. And these charts are amazing because they're potent, you know, visual representations of the science that my book is talking about and that plant-based foods are far superior to animal-based foods in every environmental category, you know, from land use to water use to energy use and greenhouse gas emissions and eutrophication. In fact, you know, just one example is it takes a hundred times more land to produce one gram of beef than it does one gram of tofu. I mean, that's an amazing difference. You know, 70% of the grain that we grow in the United States, Melissa, we feed to livestock, 70%. And, you know, we could be growing food for humans instead. In fact, if we grew uh, food on the same amount of land and we fed it to humans, guess how many more people in the United States alone we could feed?
0: I have no clue. And I don't even want to guess because I know I'm going to be way (laughs) off.
1: (laughs) Well, okay, we could feed an additional 1 billion people in the United States if we instead grew food for human consumption rather than animal consumption. And globally, we could feed an additional 4 billion people. So this is, uh, you know, these kinds of statistics and and figures blew my mind. I really had no idea that, um, you know, so much of our, our land and water and resources were going to feeding animals instead of humans, you know, ten percent of the people in this country are food insecure. They don't have enough food to eat. There's children um, in this country that don't get enough food to eat, and we're feeding so much to animals. You know, why is that? And there are people, like I said, in Eastern Kentucky who don't have access to healthy food. They're um, they're nutritionally insecure. They don't have access to healthy food. So. You know, why are we growing all this food to feed the animals when we have people who are hungry and and not getting proper nutrition? It just doesn't make sense to me. And I know that, you know, there are a lot of people who say, well, you know, we need to do that because we need the animal protein and we need the calcium from dairy for strong bones. But that's that's a myth. That's not true. Uh, the, the matrix does not have a monopoly on protein and the dairy industry doesn't have a, a monopoly on calcium. In fact, one serving of kale has more calcium than a, a, a serving of dairy. So these are nutrients that can be found in a, a wide variety of plant based foods. And so um, I, that's why it's so important for the climate. You know, methane is a potent greenhouse gas. So we talked about carbon um dioxide that's created from burning fossil fuels but methane is a greenhouse gas that's emitted by ruminant animals so that's cows sheep goats and lambs and uh, methane is 80 over the first 20 years methane is 80 times more potent at trapping heat into our atmosphere than carbon dioxide so why is the media giving methane a free ride you know we don't talk about methane, but that is the low-hanging fruit. If we're serious about making changes uh, in our climate and our greenhouse gas emissions, we should be trying to avoid all of the methane emissions that we could. And according to the EPA, the single largest source of methane emissions in the United States comes from animal agriculture. So that should be the first place we're looking if we're wanting to achieve our climate goals. Uh, that's where we should be looking, and, and um, you know, no one's talking about this, and this is this is a real problem. You know, um, the the population right now we have eight billion people on the planet, and it's expected to go to nine point eight billion globally by the year twenty fifty, and that's uh, around a twenty two or so percent increase. But the demand for meat and dairy is expected to go up by sixty percent by twenty fifty. And so this is this is a huge problem. You know, we're going to have all this demand for meat and dairy, but we're not going to have land to grow the crops to feed the animals to get the meat and dairy. So, it, you know, in fact, climate scientists say there's no way we can achieve our our greenhouse gas greenhouse gas sorry goals uh, without a widespread adoption of a plant-based lifestyle. There's just no way the the numbers cannot work by having a global population of, of people eating more and more animal-based foods and uh, averting the worst-case scenarios of climate change. It just The numbers just don't add up.
0: Now, I'm going to be a devil's advocate here for a minute because uh, each time you keep okay. saying plant-based, I think what happens when you know climate change is coming around and you see where California has these huge droughts. Right now, they're not in a drought because they're having all that rain and snow. But how are they going to be able to plant the crops and allow the crops to grow if we're having in a drought. Whereas the cattle, at least you're getting something from it. So that's what my double advocate Mm -hmm. is, is when you're talking about planting more food for plant, you know, plant consumption instead of the beef, how can we make sure that we have enough to water the Mm plants so they can grow so that we don't end up start going in starvation?
1: Right. That's a good question. Well, you know, as I said just a moment ago, 70 percent of the grain that we're growing in this country right now, we're feeding to livestock. So if we grew crops for humans, we wouldn't need to grow. We could feed an additional one billion people in the U.S. and we don't need to feed that many people. Uh, so we could actually give land back to nature and let nature uh rewild that land and that's going to store more carbon into the soil so it's actually a win-win we would be using a lot less land and a lot less water if we grew plants for human rather than animal consumption
0: what do you think the turnaround would be though because obviously there would be a few years where it's like okay we're still trying to get more carbon into the soil what how Mm -hmm. long do you think that turnaround would have to take
1: I I don't really know how long it would take. Um, I know that, you know, when we let uh, nature do its thing, it is going to start storing more and more carbon into the soil. But how long of a transition it would take, I don't know. But as I said earlier, you know, methane is one of the most potent greenhouse gases that we have. Um, And actually, nitrous oxide is... Uh, 300 times more potent at trapping heat into our atmosphere than methane. And, uh, you know, nitrous oxide comes from other things. But uh, when uh, cow urine uh, is nitrogen rich and when it breaks down into the soil, it releases uh, nitrous oxide, which is, like I said, 300 times more potent than carbon dioxide at at, uh, heating up our planet. So, you know, it's not just the methane, it's also the nitrous oxide that will be eliminated and uh, of course we're not going to get rid of uh, all ruminant animals overnight. It, this would be something that's gradual but the government should be incentivizing farmers away from you know raising animals and growing crops to feed animals because um, you know this is not healthy for us. Uh, it, you know we have declining health and the science in my book shows that a plant-based lifestyle can help us avoid. Uh, so many of the chronic conditions that are plaguing so many Americans. And, you know, it would just really eliminate so much needless suffering. And we would have longer, healthier, happier lives by adopting a plant-based lifestyle. And it would be so much better for the planet. So, yes, we would need to create, we would need water to grow crops, but we we would be growing so many fewer crops that we would actually save water and we would save land.
0: So how long do you think, I know you said earlier you didn't know around the time for the turnaround, but how long do you think it would be before we got all those um, gases and, and the carbon dioxide and the, what you said, nitrous oxide from the actual soil? How long do you think that'll take?
1: Well, again, I don't know, Uh, I haven't seen or come across any studies that talk about any projections. Uh, I do know that, you know, we're much closer to having um, uh, green energy than we are green food. And we can focus all of our energies on solar and wind, but as long as we're ignoring regenerative agriculture and creating a green uh, agricultural system, uh, we're defeating. We're never going to achieve our, our climate goals. So, you know, we need to do this in a multifaceted approach, for sure. But we can't ignore the agricultural segment of this because it is it is so powerful, um, and that's what I'm advocating for. You know, and I think methane. I think you know, ruminant animals because of methane and nitrous oxide, they're like the low hanging fruit. So I would I would say for anyone who is looking to reduce their personal carbon footprint is to give up beef, you know. uh, That would be, and that would make a huge uh, reduction in your greenhouse gas emissions right there because the the, uh, greenhouse gas emissions from growing crops and watering crops and and feeding cows is is huge. You know, we have uh, really horrible uh, food conversion rates when it comes to animal agriculture. So I can share some of this information with you. So the best food conversion rates we have right now, Melissa, are with uh, factory farm chickens. But even then, you know, we're feeding chickens four and a half times more edible food than we get back from them. And for cows, it's even worse. We're feeding cattle uh, 25 times more edible food than we get back from them. And um, these are, conversion rates for edible food. And that's really important because a lot of people will say, well, these animals you know, eat food that you know humans can't eat, like grass and hay and stuff like that. But these conversion rates are for edible food. That's food that we could eat as human beings. We're giving it to the animals and getting so little in return. And if we look at just the protein, 80% of the protein that we feed to chickens and 96% of the protein that we feed to cows is lost. We never get that back. So it's a horrible return on investment. And it's it's something that's just not sustainable. Like I said, we're gonna have 10 billion people on the planet by 2050. We can no longer continue to get, you know, such horrible returns on investment. So animal agriculture is, is a losing proposition when you just look at the numbers. It just they just don't add up.
0: Here's another thing that popped into my head as you were talking, because you were talking about how the chemicals and things like that, but what about the pesticides that are used on the plant-based foods? Because there's a lot of of farmers that don't believe in organic that they Mm -hmm. want to use the pesticides. Because I know a lot came out, I'm just putting this out here, not to say that it's on our food, but a lot came out during Vietnam where, the, our government used Agent Orange, which they thought were safe, but now they're seeing studies, mm-hmm. studies of, of veterans. My dad was a victim of it, uh, who have mm. died from exposure to Agent I'm Orange. So, so let's talk about, you know, the pesticides that we actually go on the food and how we can kind of curb that as well. So that gets mm-hmm. more people going toward the plant-based diet.
1: That's a good question. You know, I advocate for uh, organic foods as much as possible because... You know, the pesticides and fertilizers, these are um, also uh, contributing to climate change, and there are petrochemicals, and so we want to divest ourselves from that as much as possible. But, you know, again, getting back to the fact that we grow 70% of the grain in this country to feed the animals, just simply by... uh, Growing crops for human consumption, we're going to lower that number considerably. And I uh, think most of those crops that are grown for animals are using the pest- pesticides that you're talking about. Um, and so, you know, there's that alone, you know, moving to a plant based lifestyle will help bring down the number, the amount of pesticides that are, you know, in the planet getting into the groundwater and things like that. But I also know that plant based foods sometimes are not. Um, organic you know sometimes plant-based foods are grown what they call conventionally and um, you know I, I advocate for buying if you can afford it the organic uh, variety of uh, produce and vegetables and you know the price is it's becoming you know a pri- there's a greater price parity between conventional and organic now I mean bananas organic bananas are a little bit more expensive, maybe 10 cents a pound than conventional. Uh, bananas i think and apples are the same way so you know we're seeing more price parity uh and as more people you know vote with their dollars for organic foods we're going to see more farmers opting to grow those foods you know it's it's a supply and demand kind of thing as well and every time we buy a food we're voting with our dollars and we're telling these industries what it is we want and so i think if we can afford it we should buy you know organic and go for you know plant-based foods because that is what we'll be telling the industries that that we want more of but i think it's kind of as i talked about earlier that's kind of from the bottom up that's a grassroots uh, movement and there's not enough people who identify as plant-based right now to you know make a huge change so that's why i think with legislation there needs to be changes from above too with the A farm bill and with subsidies that are are provided to farmers, we need to, just like the, you know, green energy um, sector has had help from the government to fund their industry and, you know, and get it up and running. So will plant-based farmers need help from the government to get their, their uh, farms working as efficiently as possible and to help farmers, you know, move away from animal-based foods into plant-based foods. So the government has a role to play here as well
0: so how can you how can you if you're going to the grocery store obviously you want to buy as much local as possible when you're plant-based because you actually know with farmer but if you mm-hmm. don't have that and you don't have like a trader joe's or a whole foods how do you go to like say your local walmart and say okay i want to try my plant-based foods what can i what can i buy that i'm sure is organic because People say they, some products say they're organic. And then when you do a little bit of research, you find out they're not as organic as they say they are. They're, they're like right there on the, the little cusp of organic and not organic. So how can we be sure mm-hmm. of what we're buying is organic?
1: Well, I would look for certifications you know uh, on the packaging that would say you know who who is certifying that this product is organic and then, if you have questions about you know that organization, then look them up online to see you know how well respected this um, this stamp of approval for something being organic you know um, whether you know you you agree with their assessment and basically you know so these uh, companies that do uh, verify whether a food is organic or not uh, there's different different ones out there and some of them have stricter requirements than others so I think we just need to educate ourselves about about those companies and the certifications you know so many of the labels on foods today uh, are very misleading you know uh, and I think corporations do this because they know that the consumer wants to do quote the right thing they want to do something that's good for them and good for the animals and good for the environment so they put, Um, things, you know, sound bites, basically marketing sound bites on their packages like cage free and free range and things like that, as well as organic. And, you know, it's up to us as the consumer to kind of, uh, I think it was Ronald Reagan said, trust, but verify, you know, we need to, we we can't just take their word for it. We need to verify and look into exactly what they're saying when they say something is free range or organic. Um, So there's, there's, you know it falls ultimately to a certain extent back on the consumer to you know become educated about uh, these things which is one of the reasons yeah. why i wrote my book <laughs> <laughs>
0: Of course. Now I interviewed like in the very beginning when I first started this podcast, I interviewed a lady that was talking about clean beauty and the chemicals and making sure you know the chemicals that we put on our skin and things like that. And there's a couple of apps that you could go on and check. Is there any app that you can go on to check plant based foods of what's in it and whether it's the cleanest plate that you can eat? Wow.
1: That's a good question. You know, I I really don't know. I have to look that up. I'm not really sure. I know there are apps that will help you find, you know, plant-based foods at restaurants in different cities when you're traveling and things like that. I'm sure there's a resource out there uh, for that, Melissa, but I don't off the top of my head know. Uh, There's an organization I just discovered. I think it's called As We Sow org I think that's the name of it I was I was on their website because I was researching about chocolate and the um, they did a, a report on some of the health benefits and some of the problems with chocolate and so I think as we they might be a good resource for that I'm not sure though
0: you just brought up chocolate but let me tell you the number one thing that most people go on is coffee how yes is coffee coffee is plant-based correct? Yes,
1: it is. Yeah, Uh, there is one consideration though people might want to think about with coffee. So, like I talked about, how my book has charts that show the environmental impacts of growing a variety of foods, and you know most of the uh, you know animal-based foods are worse in terms of their water use and land use, but there are a couple of plant-based uh, food items that actually require quite a bit of water, and coffee is one of them. So, if you're concerned about, you know, uh, the water use, and you want to conserve water uh, you know, you could maybe lower your, your footprint, your water footprint by, you know, foregoing coffee or just reducing your consumption of coffee. And unfortunately, uh, I don't drink coffee, but I do eat chocolate and chocolate was another one of those plant-based foods that is water intensive. Um, not necessarily to grow, I don't think, but in the uh, processing of it. So, um, those, that was surprising to me to learn that Melissa, because I didn't know that any plant-based foods would be using that much water uh but chocolate and coffee unfortunately are two that they require quite a bit of water
0: and they're probably two of the biggest sellers of plant-based foods correct? <laughs> right?
1: yeah yeah unfortunately
0: so our time is almost up um before we talk about where we can find your book and where you, they can contact you for more information do you have one last little nugget that you want to share
1: Well, um, I just want to share, you know, what's behind the title of my book, which is Escape the Matrix. And so I'm using the world in the Matrix movies as a metaphor for our world. And so, you know, in the Matrix movies, artificial intelligence has taken over the planet and it's using humans as an energy source. You know, they're farming humans. And I say our world is like the Matrix because you know we've taken over this planet. There's eight billion of us now, and we're using farmed animals as our energy source. And so that's why I say we're living in the Matrix. And so my book is offering the reader a red pill, and the red pill is uh, because we have a choice. You know, we were taught to eat animal-based foods. At a very early age. And because of that, it seems natural, necessary, and nutritious. And like I said, the science in my book shows that that's not true, that we do have a choice. You know, most people eat animal based foods mainly because they've acquired a taste for them and they enjoy the taste of it. Um, but also, we do it because, you know, think, we think we need it to be healthy. And that's why my parents taught me to eat animal-based foods is because they wanted me to grow up to be healthy and strong uh, because that's what their parents taught them. And so we think we don't have a choice, but we do. And, you know, by choosing the red pill and, and escaping the matrix and adopting a plant-based lifestyle, we're, we're we're doing an enormous benefit to not only our own health, but to the health of the planet and the health of the, an, of the animals. But, you know, we, we can choose the blue pill too, But that's tantamount to maintaining the status quo. And we know uh, where that's going to take us because we can just look at the news today and see uh, the effects of uh, environmental degradation, biodiversity loss, uh, uh, mass extinction rates, uh, emerging infectious diseases uh, fueled by animal agriculture and, of course, climate change. So that's the blue pill. And I'm hoping people, when they read my book and look at the science and, and, and see what it says, that they will choose the red pill. And any kind of change we can make um, to move away Melissa from eating an, animal-based foods, the better. And it can be done gradually, you know, and it doesn't have to be 100% even. You know, there are a lot of uh, plant-based eaters out there that are like, you know, militant about it. And you, know, you have to be 100% and all this. Uh, I'm not one of those people. I don't want to blame and shame people. I want to inform people because I think once, you know, we have the science, you know, we can make better decisions starting with the food on our plate. So I just invite people to um, read my book with an open mind and to uh, explore this uh, plant-based lifestyle for yourself and for the planet. And one last thing I will leave is that, you know, business insider said that a hamburger isn't something that's bought and paid for, but a symbol of a debt that one day must be repaid. And that's because, you know, we're, the environmental cost of bringing that burger to you is not calculated into what you pay for it. It's something that's, um, you know, we're going to have to pay for it eventually. And our children and grandchildren are going to inherit a debt so vast that they could never repay it if we keep eating in the matrix. So I encourage people, you know, if you have children or grandchildren or or want to someday to, you know, escape the matrix and eat plants and, you know you will make a better future for everyone on the planet by doing that. So
0: I do like one thing that you said right there. You said you're not militant about making sure everybody eats this. It's okay <laughs> if you say okay Wednesday night we're gonna forgo eating meat and we're gonna eat plant based all Wednesday, you know, or a couple of days a week. Yeah plant based
1: I think for me that the the ultimate would be for people to flip that script and say, oh, Saturday night's a special occasion. I'm going to have a a beef hamburger or, you know, this is so and so's graduation. Let's, you know, and I don't equate eating animal based foods with celebration. I don't. You know, I see animal based foods as, um, you know, suffering, you know, suffering. So I don't equate animal based foods with being celebratory. But some people do. And, you know, that can still continue. It's not the occasional piece of meat on our plate that's killing the planet. It's eating it three times a day. So rather than saying, you know, we can start out by saying, you know, I'm going to give up meat on Wednesdays or whatever. But I think eventually the goal would be to eat, eat plants, you know predominantly in your life and then say, for special occasions, you know, there are people who only drink a glass of wine on the weekends and don't drink any during the week, you know? So, you know, maybe your animal based food consumption could be like that. You know, everyone who's on a a diet has a cheat day. Well, a plant-based lifestyle isn't a diet, but you could say I'm going to eat this way. But then, for certain occasions, I will let myself, you know, have a steak. You know, it's not great for the cow, of course, and it's not great for the planet. But you know, just like one salad doesn't make you healthy, eating one steak isn't going to wreck your health either. It's it's the eating of animal-based foods three times a day over the course of a lifetime that leads to all these chronic conditions that are killing so many Americans uh, that could be that could be avoided, honestly. In in the science in my book. I go through the top 10 reasons uh, people are dying in this country and I list the science that shows how a plant-based lifestyle can help you avoid, reverse or prevent this chronic condition. And it's heart disease, cancer, Alzheimer's disease, diabetes, hypertension, uh, you know, the list goes on and on, so.
0: Wow, you've certainly given us a lot to think about. <laughs> I mean, honestly, and, and guys, um, Stuart, tell us where you, they can find you if they want more information.
1: Okay, yes, my website is StuartWaldner.com, and I'm on Facebook and Instagram and LinkedIn. And they can find my book on Amazon.
0: Yeah, it's called Escape the Matrix. And you've obviously given a lot of thought, and you've done a lot of your research on this subject. And I just can't wait to hear exactly what people do with this information. Because this book has not been out that long, has it?
1: No, it's been out about four months, so... Um, yeah, I'm excited that it's, it's out there. I I spent years researching it. And like I said, I have years of lived experience, you know, living this lifestyle and, you know, my, my primary care physician wrote a great endorsement for my book saying, you know, that I was, I'm an outlier in his practice because I am so healthy because of the way I'm living my life compared to his other patients. And so, you know, we, like I said earlier, there are a lot of unhealthy people in Kentucky. And, you know, there are ways, uh, I know if I can do it, other people can do it too. And it's always better to adopt a, a healthy lifestyle before you're sick. But even if you've been diagnosed with a chronic condition or you're suffering, uh, from a chronic condition, you can help stabilize or reverse that, uh, through a plant-based lifestyle. You know, the national Institute of health says that a plant-based lifestyle is, is the best for preventing and, managing diabetes. I mean, so the list goes on and on. So Benjamin Franklin said an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. So it's best to, you know, adopt a healthy lifestyle before you're diagnosed with something. But even if you have been, uh, you can adopt this way of eating and you may see, you know, drastic improvements. And there are a lot of medical doctors out there now who are practicing food as medicine. And they're seeing, you know, Amazing results from their patients who adopt this way of living. So, um, I encourage people to choose the red pill. You know, you 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 won't be sorry.
0: Well, Stuart, thank you for coming on and for sharing. Um, once again, his book is called Escape the Matrix, and it's inside the matrix about he talks about how you know the the animal farms, um, doing climate change, everything else that goes into our environment, how adopting a plant-based lifestyle even if it's only for a couple of days a week would make a huge change in climate mm-hmm. change so thank yes. you Stuart, and i will put in the show notes everywhere where you can find Stuart where you can buy his book as
1: well thank you melissa it's been a pleasure chatting with you thanks all
0: right so guys be blessed and we'll see you on the next chat from the blog cabin bye chats from the blog cabin We not only have voices for a podcast, but also faces for
1: YouTube. Don't miss your next episode.